Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. such a great laugh we've had together since the moment we met each other. Uh, this young guy is called Chuck Garnet Levers, one of those double-barreled surnames, which makes him sound really, really uh, special, even if he's very common. And uh, <laughs> he's 32 years old. He's from the western side of Australia near Perth. A lot of competition between South Africans and Australians. But on this one, we're kind of friends and we're on the same page. Uh, he started flying in 2013. When he was 21 years old, he left Australia to go discovering the world and having a look at some greener and fantastic pastures. Uh, Chuck is a wonderful young man who I met with the great honor in Vought in Norway three years ago. In 2012, he arrived in Norway, and he's going to talk to us about rafting today. He's also going to talk to us about acro. He's going to talk to us about test piloting. He's going to talk to us about speed riding and instructing and all he fantastic experiences in paragliding. Hey Steph, how are you doing? Good to see you again, mate. Really nice to have you on the podcast. I welcome you here. I'd like to uh, obviously ask some of your great experiences. You've been in New Zealand and Canada and Peru and Chile, all rafting experiences. Let's go straight to the point. How is it to raft professionally? What's rafting about? For me, I see rafting as kind of going down a river on this floppy, soft thing, um, obviously, it's a whole responsibility when you've got a team of people. Tell us about rafting. Give us your, your, your deepest thoughts on it. Uh, I wasn't originally attracted to rafting. I was more into whitewater kayaking. And uh, when I was living in uh, New Zealand, uh, I went there specifically to, to get better at kayaking because on the west coast of Australia, you can imagine, we don't have many rivers. When they do run, is only like one or two months a year. So I went to New Zealand to, to improve my kayaking and I just sort of fell into the rafting. It wasn't something I ever planned to do. It just sort of came naturally to me and I found I enjoyed it and got paid, paid to do it. So uh, yeah, I finished my training in New Zealand. And the thing about rafting is you meet so many people from so many different countries that one job nearly always leads into the next. You have... Uh, if you have five different raft guys from five different countries, that means that as long as you're a good raft guide and not too much of a dickhead, they'll probably recommend you to get a job somewhere else. So from there, I got offered a job in Canada. I went and did a, a full year living in Canada. I learned to ski there um, after my summer of rafting. And then a Peruvian friend of mine recommended that I should go to South America to try some rafting. So ended up in Peru for for four months working there and I was going to go home because I was pretty broke by then and then everyone was saying well you, you can't come to South America and not go kayaking and rafting in Chile so I ended up going there for another eight months and uh, yeah it sort of it just runs on from one job to the next and if you if you really enjoy working on the river they say if you enjoy what you do you would never work in your life that's uh, absolutely not true in, in rafting. You work your ass off, but uh, you do have a really good time as well. So, yeah, work for me. 
I couldn't agree more. If you work in anything you love, uh, you uh, never work a day in your life. And you seem to be one of those uh, really illustrious characters. For example, you showed up in Garda uh, in Italy and suddenly you were everybody's friend and everybody loved you and you've kind of uh, adapted yourself in a, a quite, let's say, um, a clicking scene because you know the Italians they don't just let anybody in especially they kind of a little bit it's about who you know who you are etc give us your comments on that well, I don't know uh, I think I just love Gata I'm one of those people where from the very first time I went there you know uh, it never it never stopped being an amazing place for me from the very first time I visited. I love the people. I love the place. I love the climate. Um, you have to understand, I'd, up until then, I'd been mostly living in Norway for the past three or four years. And, you know, in Norway, if the weather temp, if the temperature goes over 25 degrees, everybody is outside sunbathing, you know. Um, and in Garda, it's, if it's under 25 degrees, there's probably something wrong. So I just love the place so much and yeah every time I went there it was like I feel like Peter Pan and Never Neverland I just had so much fun there with so many good people and um, it was what also I met so many really nice Austrian people while I was in Garda and that was sort of what encouraged me to eventually make the move from Norway to Austria instead. Yeah, wonderful. You uh, had a, a, a tandem job in the Zilla Valley in Zillertal in Austria, where lots of my tandem friends are from and lots of the guys who have set really big, big uh, records. The furthest flight around the Alps is set uh, from the Zilla Valley. Uh, Walder Tom or Tom Walder, him and his mates and Stocky and a couple of other really good uh, cross-country cracks live there. T tell us about that place, please. Yeah, uh, so after, I think I did about five years in Norway, after a, a road trip that we did, basically we had one summer in Norway, so the year before I met you, and um, it, it basically started raining in, in the middle of the summer, and it didn't stop for three or four months. It would just rained nonstop for three or four months in the middle of the summer, and when you're a, a very enthusiast, enthusiastic uh, paragliding pilot, as you can imagine, this this makes you pretty frustrated because uh, you, you cannot really go flying at all. So I basically got fed up, bought a van, kitted it out, and we did a road trip in uh, October, November, December. Uh, we went down, spent a month and a half in the Alps, and then uh, a month and a half in down in southern Spain and came back around Christmas time. But uh, I kind of realized on that trip that if I wanted to be flying, um, as much as I love Norway and how beautiful it is there, um, it's not the best place for flying. You know, I had better flying conditions in October, November and December in the Alps than I'd ever had in Norway. So I was sort of starting to realize, okay, maybe maybe I should make the move. You fly Acro. Uh, when I met you in Norway, you were flying a, um, a Gin GTO. You like speed riding. You uh, have had a terrible experience landing in the lake in on your skis in January. Tell us about that one. I learned speed flying very shortly after learning paragliding. Um, they sort of did a specialized course where you could, they, it was like a bit of a, uh, a test to see if it would work, where they allowed people with a certain level of paragliding to go straight into, uh, into speed flying. And I took this course very overconfident this is one of the 
the main problems with speed flying is that it is a very, very easy thing to do. It's much easier than than paragliding, but it's much more dangerous as well. Yeah, basically, I just made a. It was a, actually more of a paragliding mistake than a than a speed flying crash. I just took a took a 360 turn against a strong headwind and got pushed over over the lake in my in my turn and uh, wasn't able to make it back to the to the shore to land and end up landing in the lake in in January in Norway, which as you can imagine is pretty cold. Uh, with my skis on and everything, yeah. Um, a lot of the local guys reckon reckoned that uh, the reason that I didn't die or get in more trouble than I I was was because I was a rafting guide and I was used to cold water um, and I didn't panic. So basically I landed in the water, I unclipped my skis and managed to swim myself into the side. Luckily I was only about 30, 40 meters out from, from the ice. So I had to swim myself in. Yeah, bit of a scary experience and uh, very embarrassing and a, a good check for the ego for sure. But uh, yeah, in the end, uh, everything turned out fine. Um, I didn't even get cold during the whole experience, probably because of a bit of adrenaline and also a bit of, uh, yeah, I was wearing all my skiing clothes and they're designed to keep you warm. So they, they did that even once I got out of the water. But yeah, the whole the whole experience was not a good one. And I got a bit of a reputation around town after that one. So, <laughs> But uh, a few years later, I was also teaching speed, speed riding in Norway. And uh, I mean... I had to try and really, when you teach people a sport that is so easy yet so dangerous, you really have to try and encourage uh, mediation and not to push too far because it is really, really a dangerous thing to do. So, yeah, these days I don't like teaching speed riding, but paragliding is good to go. It's uh, much a lot, lot, the speeds are a lot slower and things are a lot safer. It takes a big person to be able to tell a story of accident and be able to say it uh, in a humble and proper way. You've obviously come back from that. Um, uh, are there any lessons that you would like to say to any pilot about sobriety, about not learning too fast? Um, I've heard lots of the people I've podcasted, including Russell Ogden, a few minutes ago. 50 to 100 hour mark is where a lot of pilots will make their mistake. They've come off their course. They're still cautious. They get more lax. They get more relaxed. And then something happens. I was lucky in the fact that uh, I fell in with some very good speed flying parts who really told me to, to chill out. So um, Jamie Lee and um, Malachi Templeton, they were visiting Voss at that time. I did a lot of flying with them that, that next summer. And I was definitely on a bit of a trajectory towards, you know, having an accident. When you're that enthusiastic and you're that that keen to fly in any condition and to fly, you know, if you want to do all the, the crazy stuff that everybody else does. And they were the ones who really told me to chill out, you know. And uh, I'm really happy that I listened. And I think that really steered me away from any serious, serious speed flying accidents and uh I think it's very important to to take your time. I, you talk to any professional pilot. I think in in uh, in any level, whether it's cross country, acrobatics, and stuff like this, and people will tell you that the most important thing is to take your time. You don't have to rush rush things. People jump up onto hotter wings much quicker than they should. Um, I'm pretty sure I did as well. I probably progressed much faster than I needed to, and flew gliders that were hotter than I needed at the time, but um, yeah, when you're a beginner, you don't you don't know, you know, and you see people going around flying on a, 
after one year, they're flying on a sea glider or a D glider. And they say, oh, well, I only do coastal soaring. Or it's quite typical in Norway that people fly hot gliders because often the conditions there are not that turbulent compared to, say, the Alps or, you know, Spain or elsewhere. So um, they don't realize what a, what a hot glider can do if you can't control it. So. So I agree with you completely. I mean, uh, I think a couple of people will disagree with you on a couple of those points, but uh, that's what makes the world go around. Uh, Louis Mickey Mouse from uh, Norway telling me how rough it can get in Norway in uh, the spring months. And I kind of agree, you know, uh, it's, um, uh, in, within the first year of me flying a glider, which is today either a D or a CCC glider, um, you know, I'm very fortunate that I had a guardian angel watching over me. But maybe the question is, uh, is it that tiny fine line between respect and confidence? Is it that tiny fine line between uh, risk and reward? Uh, is it the, uh, a bit of dexterity, personality to make one um, avert an accident or come out of a positive way as opposed to a negative way? Is it you landing water with your rafting experience and the amount of adrenaline you had in that moment and that like, fuck, it's just happened, shit, I'm, I've got to swim 30 meters to the uh, ice and you made it out alive. You could have died, of course, you know that. Great that today you are a test pilot for air design. Uh, you work very closely with the man I respect extremely in the uh, world of um, paraglider design. It's Stefan Diegler, him and his team at air design are making really good product. Of course, they've, gone, they've had their learning mistakes with regards to making a couple of boo-boo gliders, but which glider company hasn't had the learning experience of kind of hiccups uh, along the way? You reckon your best glider that you've ever flown is a Rise 4? I have to reiterate, it's a great glider. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, um, Stefan, uh, we were working on it uh, basically last summer. And uh, I, I'm still fairly new to, to the testing game. Um, I admit that I'm still learning a lot to do with it. R4 is, yeah. Well, normally when you fly any glider, you can normally point out a point where you say, okay, it could be better there or it could be better there. No matter what glider you fly, there's always a little something that you find and you say, okay, that could be improved. On the Rise 4, I've flown it a lot. I took it on a, on a trip to, to Spain and Portugal. Um, I've flown it heavily overloaded. I've flown it heavily underloaded. In, all, in a whole bunch of the different sizes. And I have to say that there's not much to, that I can find wrong with this glider um, at all. You were telling me how uh, uh, you were flying one acro glider there. Even the commentators were saying, wow, fantastic. That's not even an acro glider. Was that the Rise 4 you were flying there? No, that was the, the low B from, from Air Design. That one is called the Vivo. Um, but that's also a great glider for, for introduction to, to uh, acrobatic flying. You know, A lot of people think that when you learn acrobatics, you should immediately go straight onto an acro glider. This is a very common misconception. Um, low B gliders and high B gliders are the best way to learn all of your first dynamic maneuvers. Um, you should have everything dialed on a B glider before you move to a larger acro glider, in my opinion. Um, it's really cool to see some of the, the acro companies have started bringing out larger acro gliders that didn't really exist in those sizes before. They used to only be small ones. At, uh, at the lower weight range, these gliders are incredibly forgiving for people who've stepped up from a, from a B glider. I think it's really, really cool to see uh, companies making larger acro gliders 
that are designed for for yeah beginners you know to not have such a high high wing loading and uh the the old freestyle gimmick you know the freestyle glider that you should go from a you know b glider to a freestyle glider to an acro glider uh, I mean, I learned on a bunch of the freestyle wings, and they were far more aggressive than any of the acro gliders I ever flew. So, yeah, I don't know. Each to their own, but uh, yeah, I think mastering everything on a B and then moving to a large acro glider is the way to go. It's good to see that uh, the acro acro glider companies are designing larger acro gliders that are, are suitable for for freestyle and, and learning learning paragliding, uh, acro paragliding. Moving on, I want to talk to you about the great place we met. And you invited me to a wonderful week in Loen, L-O, Norway, where we met the completely mad, completely cooked, but so living his life, highly specialized doctor, the Dr. Richard Hendrickson, who's the base jumper. And I was so impressed. He would just take his, I've never seen anyone pack up a base rig so quickly, throw it on his back and he'd be in the lift on the next way up for a, uh, I don't know how many times did he jump base on that day. Oh, I don't know, but they they're doing a lot of laps on on that. It's become very very popular for for speed riding, paragliding, and base jumping. Of course, it's it's a really become a mecca mecca for flying in Norway now. So you lived in Norway for close to five years as a foreigner. Tell us about living in Norway. Tell us about the what's attractive, what's fantastic, and what you didn't like about Norway. Well, uh, I originally moved there for, for rafting and kayaking. That was my passion back before I learned how to fly. Uh, I got offered work there and yeah, I, it really blew my mind. The, the beauty of that place is, is pretty unbelievable. You could go around every corner in a car and every, every scene is more breathtaking than the last one. And when the flying conditions are good, uh, it's phenomenal, as you know. I think you, I think you did so well. You, you didn't follow the most beaten path when you were in Norway. You just went, and anywhere you saw a mountain that looked like it was working, you would go and you would fly, and you would have these awesome little adventures. That and you flew in, in places I think nobody else has flown before, just because you just get out of your car and hike up a mountain and, and go fly in these really cool spots. So that was you. You did it the right way. The hard, the hardest part about Norway is getting the weather. Uh, at the right time you know people ask me oh what month should i visit norway um which month in summer has the best weather well it's russian roulette you never know when it's going to be good wait wait to see a big high pressure system moving in and then uh, then go to norway <laughs> that's the way to do it no i really loved norway i was so impressed by how decent the country was how easy it was to travel around and very different to how I thought. I mean, I smuggled so much alcohol into Norway when I uh, took the ferry across from Denmark. It was ridiculous. I didn't know that there was a limit on how much alcohol you could take. So my three cases of beer, my whatever it was, I don't want to say this quickly, but um, I had no idea. And I found out uh, that just uh, half a bottle of schnapps could make a hell of a, an impression on somebody who is paying really big money for that uh, uh, in the in the sh- store, so a kind of alcohol becomes a really big trading friend, which is so nice to hear. Um, yeah, those those boys. Uh, I spoke to them recently. They're still going pretty well, and the Biltom company is going well. Um, Maddie Maddie was one of the guys I learned to fly with. So me and him pretty much took our licenses at the same time, and uh, yeah, we we were best best mates for I guess our first two to three years of flying together. We learned. Learn XC together. We learn uh, acro together. Um, I'm not sure how much he flies anymore these days, but 
yeah, we, we used to fly tandems together. It was, uh, yeah, he was a really good friend and really happy to learn to fly with that guy. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, there's, I think one of the greatest things about flying in, in Norway and Scandinavia in general is it, it makes you very good at, at scratching. Because, uh, I mean, Mickey was talking about how, how strong the conditions can be, and he's right. Um, I still think some of the strongest climbs and roughest climbs I've ever had in my life were in Norway. But it's such a knife edge, you know. It's not often that we get good thermals in Norway, you know. Um, you know, good, clean, wide thermals. It's, it's either pocket rockets that are going to take you to the moon, or it's super light, scratchy shit, and you're just going to spend hours piecing it together bit by bit to get up. And it's, uh, it makes you very good at scratching in Norway, you know. And, yeah, I, I appreciated that as a skill. I learned a lot of good skills. Um, ground handling, I spent who knows how many hours of ground handling. And in the winter, we do a lot of kiting with the, with the speed gliders and also with paragliders. But um, when it's really windy in Norway, the good thing is because the mountains are not so steep in the way the Alps are, you get this more laminar wind blowing over the mountains and you get you can have the most amazing soaring sessions and kiting sessions with the speed gliders, you know. Um, a, lo a lot of people don't realize that um, you can use a speed glider in the same way as like a kite surfing rig, you know, and you can use it to pull yourself to the top of the mountain. In the winter in Voss, I used to, on a regular basis, I'd start at the top of the ski resort and in 10 minutes I'd be at top of the mountain, top of the, the local mountain, you know, soaring on, on the peak, you know, and it was, yeah, this was a regu regular occurrence when you get these sort of strong, stable winds that you can really enjoy with a speed glider, so... Yeah, um, I'm really grateful for a lot of the, the skills that Norway taught me. Um, also really happy down here in the Alps, trying to make the best of it wherever you go. I just want to say thanks, Steph, for, for inviting me on. It's been a, been a pleasure to catch up again. Lovely, lovely to catch up, and I hope the quarantine's over soon enough and we can get to go, go do some proper flying again. Look forward to it. Take care, bud. No. Absolute pleasure, buddy. See you soon.